Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Joe Holden, Global Head of Research at Mercer, and I'm your host today. I'm joined by Ashley Knight, who is Mercer's Fellow at the World Economic Forum, and Maha El-Tobji, who is Head of Shaping the Future of Investing, also at the Forum. Over the past two years, Mercer's partnered with the Forum to explore how investors are addressing systemic trends. Now, the first white paper that we produced that was launched in May 2020 explored the six most significant of those systemic trends. And the second white paper, which we called Trendsetters, Transformational Investment Practices of Advanced Investors, launched in March this year. Now, it's that second paper that we're here to discuss today. And essentially, that looked at how institutional asset owners, such as sovereign wealth funds, pensions, funds, endowments, foundations, and insurers, were all addressing those six trends um, or risks um, across both their investment portfolios, but also across their organizations. Now, the paper also considers how we develop a framework for addressing global systemic trends that investors can basically use to benchmark their progress against their peers. Now, the white paper includes several case studies and anecdotes, which drew from more than 180 interviews with members of the investment community. And it includes some really great insights from GIC, who is the paper's chair, and the steering committee, which included Zurich Insurance, OP Trust, OMAS, and Publica. Now, Ashley Amaha, perhaps we could start today um, with you just telling us a little bit about your roles on this project. Yeah, happy to dive in. Um, I've been at the forum now for about a year, sent by Mercer to be the lead author on that second paper that you referenced, Joe. And a lot of my role was engaging with members of the asset owner, investment manager, and data communities to essentially explore these six global systemic trends and dive deeper. But I have an investment background, having spent time in Mercer's London and New York office doing alternative fund primary diligence. Great. And Joe, first of all, I want to thank you so much for asking me to contribute to your podcast series. Um, And I'd like to thank Mercer on behalf of the World Economic Forum for the great collaboration that we've had with you over the years on a variety of different topics. So as you said, my name is Mahal Tobki. I head the uh, Future of Investing platform here at the forum. The platform uh, seeks to uh, implement stakeholder capitalism across the investment value chain to ensure efficient allocation of capital that optimizes returns for all stakeholders. And the work that we've done with Mercer is one major element or strand of the work that we've been doing on this platform. And so my role here has been really to shepherd the great work that Ashley and the rest of your team has done. Marv, that's great. Um, And I think I'm going to come to you first, if I may, as we kick off. And and I just wonder if you could maybe introduce us to some of those seismic shifts that the research focused on, and perhaps if you could say why they're so important to global asset owners. Sure, Joe. thanks. So when we started this work uh, two years ago, really the question, the thesis that we asked or what we were trying to explore here are what are CEOs, what's their major concern? the CEOs of large pensions, sovereigns, what they look at their portfolios, when they look at their responsibility to their stakeholders over the next 50, 100 years, what are they really thinking about? And um, through the research, we discovered that there really some of these seismic shifts that you refer to present both some risks and opportunities to their portfolios and to their ability to meet their obligations. So we identified through the work 
uh, six major trends or seismic shifts, as you've referred to them. They are climate, low and negative interest rates, technological evolution or disruption, demographic shifts, geopolitics, and water scarcity. I'm sure if we were talking to people today, some would also say cyber and diversity. Um, and really the question here is, how do these trends impact your returns, your, your portfolio's returns over time? Um, and also, I think, as you mentioned at one point, impact their organizational um, structure. I think just, you know, one key element and why we're going back between the definition of trends and risks is because this conversation has really evolved over the past two years beyond just what do investors want to hedge against to what are associated opportunities like within tech evolution, an organization may be very concerned about data fraud or asset obsolescence in their portfolio, but equally really want to benefit from venture capital and artificial intelligence. Actually, I might just pick up on that in terms of sort of particularly maybe the, the artificial intelligence angle in the sense that, look, you know, we'll talk about the specific risks covered in the research a little bit later. But just on that sort of artificial um, intelligence point, or perhaps sort of just more broadly technology, like, do you have any thoughts on how asset owners are using tech to address sort of some of the risks or trends in particularly interesting ways? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, many investors are leveraging data analytic providers that rely on AI and data science to obtain an outside in perspective of corporate violations or to measure climate related risks. Um, and having this information has really enabled investors to engage with companies and proactively address areas of concern. So one such example that I could think of from some of our conversations in terms of optimizing transparency and information through artificial intelligence and machine learning is through a data service provider called RepRisk, which is actually able to screen more than 100,000 um, public media and stakeholder sources daily in 20 different languages to assess different ESG factors for materiality across public and private companies. Um, and beyond leveraging technology to conduct ESG analyses, some investors have leveraged um, this technology to develop specific tools. So as an example, one Canadian asset owner um, is using you know, a water-related physical climate change risk tool to obtain location-specific information on water stress for certain geographies which then helps them better deal with their real estate exposure. And beyond tools for analysis, um, I touched on it earlier, but technology has really embedded the underlying investment level uh, as well through the use of artificial intelligence, fintech, and venture capital. And one Australian superannuation fund we interviewed actually talked about how they're investigating alternatives to venture capital by investing in old world companies, which are now intentionally adopting new technologies that create legacy business disruption and simultaneously also increasing their market share. So not having to worry about um, sizing constraints in the same way you typically would with certain venture capital allocations. Okay, so clearly technology can help, but perhaps if we just take a step back, maybe on a more basic level, are investments themselves enough on their own to address the risks or the trends that you've identified? It's a tricky one. So when it comes to addressing the seismic shifts, many asset owners that we spoke with jumped right to um, thematic investment solutions, whether it was circular economy funds or sustainable agriculture or blue bonds to address climate change. But of the you know, over 200 interviews with the community, we've realized that if organizations want to truly address the trends over time, 
they need to follow a systematic approach, um, which cuts across vision and objective setting, governance and implementation. And this type of approach really ensures that investment teams are making decisions that are aligned with their organization's vision. Um, and this behavior is often made possible by the appropriate you know, incentives, education and tools, which then really empower the investment team to align their actions with what stakeholders really want. Maha, did you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I was just going to jump in and say, and I think Ashley covered it really well. I mean, the the point here, it depends on who you talk to within the organization, but definitely the when you talk to the CEOs and the CIOs, this concept, again, that we talk about a lot at the forum around stakeholder capitalism is something that kind of permeates the discussion. You can't really get to the investment products that Ashley was referring to, which is where the investment managers hone in on because that's their job. If the culture of the institution hasn't adopted these philosophies, if you haven't thought about how this fits in with your strategy and objectives, if you haven't thought about how you measure yourself and how you measure your the performance of your investment teams, the performance of your portfolio companies. So there's just um, a lot, <laughs> to use a very simple word here, but that goes into kind of implementing uh, some of these um, strategies that we're talking about to address these seismic shifts trends, opportunities, whatever you want to call them. I just want to change tact slightly for a second. I'm thinking particularly about sort of the situation in Europe at the moment. So regulation is predicted to have a huge impact on investor behavior. Can we just talk about that a little bit and, and perhaps sort of think about the impact that regulations and policy might have on asset owners' abilities to actually advance? I mean, Maha, I don't know if you want to take that one to start yeah, off Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll start. It's This is, you know, an evolving situation, Joe. There is so much happening in the policy and regulatory arena right now, especially when it comes to climate. So I'll try to break it down a little bit for, for you and for the listeners. Just in this, this week, the G7 put out a communique, so the finance ministers of what is referred to as the seven most industrialized countries, but just in alphabetical order, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the UK, um, the communique stressed the need to green the global financial system and supported mandatory climate-related financial disclosures based on the TCFD framework. So that's looking at kind of the G7 who will be meeting in July, and there'll be much more discussion on this topic. And then if you look at continental Europe, um, the EU's sustainable finance disclosure regulation already requires asset managers and other financial market participants to provide standardized disclosures on how ESG factors are integrated at their entity level, so at the organizational level, as well as at the product level. The UK has similar legislation that's focused specifically on pension trustees, but also on other capital market participants. And in the US, the SEC is considering similar legislation. And we see Chairman Gensler and uh, Secretary Yellen all talking about similar things, especially as it relates to climate disclosure. But I think, you know, once that is put in place, which is will take time, the focus then will turn to other social factors and governance related factors as well. So Ashley, I mean, Maha referenced it there in her responses. I mean, clearly the area we're seeing the most regulation and policy decisions in is, is around climate change. What are we actually seeing the most sophisticated assets doing um, in terms of climate change? Are they engaging or are they divesting? 
historically there was this, um, you know, preference to divest because it was simple. You have an exclusion list and you, you know, rid your portfolio of those existing exposures. And when you're doing diligence on a manager or negotiating a side letter, you tell them to avoid certain um, exposures to tobacco or coal or, you know, whatever the case may be. One trend we've definitely observed with several advanced asset owners in the community recently is this movement away from pure divestment um, and negative exclusions and towards engagement. And I think one of the reasons why this is really important is because if the world really does want to transition to a lower carbon economy and you know does appreciate what the transition means and you know looks at different physical risk indicators, they realize that it's going to be very important for them to take on these companies that many people rely on, whether it's in the oil and gas sector or others, and essentially work with them on plans and incentivize them appropriately to adapt their um, strategy to target a lower carbon economy. And, you know, it was one asset owner in our report that we quote that basically said, what's the point of going net zero as the world burns around you? And a lot of that has to do with the fact that investor behavior, especially when it comes to a lot of these large asset owners, will impact what benchmarks look like in the future in terms of portfolio holdings. Another trend for advancement has been this um, use of partnerships to increase understanding of portfolios risks. So as an example, Wellington Management's climate exposure risk assessment tool helps investors and climate research advisory partners, um, in their case, CalPERS and Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, better understand companies' physical risks, such as, you know, extreme heat or drought or wildfires and hurricanes by leveraging data science and quantitative models. So kind of back to the technology point. And another kind of signal of advancement around engagement has really been the Transition Pathway Initiative, which essentially, you know, rewards the good actors in any given sector by giving them more capital um, and kind of, you know, vote with their money in terms of divesting only from individual companies that are not on board these new climate-related vision goals that many organizations have. Mm -hmm. I mean, just following on from that, you, you, you mentioned it briefly there, but what's presenting, or sorry, preventing more asset owners from committing to, to net zero targets? Yeah, you know, some very um, sophisticated investors are waiting to commit until they've established the um, you know, appropriate short, medium, and long-term goals, which take a lot of time to formulate and test. Interestingly, we've seen other cases where folks haven't been as advanced on climate, but they're making aspirational commitments before knowing how they'll get there. Um, and this could be driven, you know, by stakeholders they have. So teachers positioning, students petitioning, um, also by culture as well, kind of wanting to, you know, make that big pledge and then having the pressure um, once it's public to really get there. But regardless of the approach that um, investors take around, you know, publicly committing and coming up with plans, we think it's important for these investors to understand their current baseline. So, you know, what their portfolio's current admissions and exposures to climate transition risk are, the portfolio's transition capacity, and from there, feel empowered to confidently set targets that are appropriate for them and understand what this means for their portfolio and their individual teams in the short, medium, and long term. Maybe one basic element to add, Joe, to this and to take a step back is some of this is also just definitional. So there is no agreed upon definition on what it means to be net zero. So I think, you know, there's a whole other evolving debate right now on just um, mandatory metrics and disclosures that a number of these same finance ministers and others are looking at. And so the point here is, is getting to that right definition as well. 
Okay. Um, thank you. I mean, I, I've probably just got one final question. Um, and I'm just really interested to know whether any of the findings from the asset owner survey that you conducted um, surprised either of you? Yeah, maybe just one thing we did as part of this research was conduct an asset owner survey that we had more than 30 global asset owners respond to, and they represent a couple um, trillion dollars in assets. And we realized that even if an asset owner is over 100 billion in total assets, that there is this disconnect when it comes to their ability to self-assess where they stand when dealing with these non-traditional trends. Unlike performance league tables that investors can typically use to compare their performance to how other, let's say, Canadian asset owners are doing or Southeast Asian asset owners are doing, there isn't the same tool that exists when you think about these seismic shifts like climate change or technological evolution. So one definitive element of this work is really that we need to come up with solutions to help folks self-identify where they are, and then importantly, look at where gaps exist. And we've actually developed that tool, which we're rolling out to the market now. Amaha, um, feel free to also jump in, just given your role and your um, two-year engagement with this research as well. You know, Joe, I think what was really um, heartening, if not necessarily surprising, was the desire by many of these institutions who do compete at the end of the day to really collaborate and work together on solving some of these larger systemic trends and issues. So whether it's, you know, asset owners coming together around climate specifically now, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, as we've seen over the past year. So I think that was one of the areas where we really saw a tremendous amount of effort on the part of these institutions to come together, learn from each other, exchange ideas, the more more advanced, as we call bringing others along. So I think we're going to see, or we hope actually, we'll see a lot of progress in this space in the future. Listen, Ashley, Maha, thank you for today. It's been really great to hear more about the project. Just turning to our listeners, if you'd like to receive a copy of the white paper, or indeed, if you'd like to discuss the findings in any more detail, then you know, please contact us at ctci at mercer.com. Likewise, if you're an asset owner and you'd like to complete the self-assessment that the guys mentioned, also drop us a note at that email address. So just once more, ctci at mercer.com. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us today. It would be great if you uh, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and also leave us a review. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal, tax, or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Please refer to Mercer's full legal disclaimer in the episode description.